is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about family medicine and medical workforce in Nevada. My guests are Dr. Andy Pasternak, a local family practice physician and owner of Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine and Silver Sage Sports and Fitness Lab and Dr. John Packham, Associate Dean, Office of Statewide Initiatives, University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. Dr. Packham, let's talk first about the health workforce report that you do in Nevada. What is it, how is it used, uh, and who puts it together? That report is put together by my office, the Office of Statewide Initiatives at the uh, UNR School of Medicine, and what we try to do every year is to provide an update to what I would just call a, a, a snapshot of what the workforce looks like in Nevada. That is to say, what is the demand for physicians, nurses, other health professionals, and how does that stack up with the current supply? And that is the number of individuals who are licensed uh, to practice in the state of Nevada and uh, how many are actually employed in healthcare in our state. And how do we use that report? Well, the aim of the report is to uh, improve policymaking, to be, to be uh, uh, as simple as I can, and uh, to make sure that policymakers, whether they're higher education leaders, whether they're state legislators, whether it's uh, the governor o- governor's office and the executive branch, just have the best information available, whether they're designing new education programs, thinking about uh, graduate medical education, uh, practice sites for, uh, you know, new professionals and so forth, uh, that they just have the best uh, information at their disposal. And how do you gather such detailed information? Well, we have a variety of, uh, of uh, strategies on that. Our principal strategy is uh, every July we ask the uh, state licensing boards. There's at least, uh, to my count, 26 boards that license approximately 75 uh, types of health professionals. Uh, We get that information uh, from them uh, and uh, over the course of the summer uh, try to sort it out by county and region and uh, also importantly uh, see if those numbers are keeping pace with uh, population growth in the state. Uh, What we've seen across most professions is a nice steady increase in the number of licensees Uh, But in uh, some areas, it's not keeping pace with population growth. Uh, And do you compare those numbers to national numbers? Yeah, we try to do that uh, uh, when the data lend themselves to apples to apples comparisons. I I don't have quite as much control over uh, those national figures and how they're calculated and where they come from. But um, uh, we're able to benchmark, uh, you know, per capita rates of physicians and nurses and psychiatrists and so forth to national metrics. So this isn't just physicians. We're looking at the entire workforce. Oh, yeah. No, it's the entire workforce. And how do we stack up nationally? Well, I think we've made progress in some areas, such as uh, dentists and pharmacists. We were at the bottom of the pack uh, a decade or uh, 15 years ago and have moved to the middle of the pack. Uh, I think the ones uh, that concern me the most uh, are uh, primary care docs and providers, uh, uh, as well as mental and behavioral uh, health providers. Uh, We're... In any given year, somewhere between 45th and 50th for the number of uh, primary care docs, uh, registered nurses, um, uh, and uh, importantly, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. Uh, And And again, I think we've seen the numbers increase, but 
Uh, we've also seen, particularly over the last four or five years, uh, a pretty rapid population growth in both northern and southern Nevada. Probably a little more intense in the south, but um, um, uh, economic expansion has meant that we're seeing population uh, growth rates almost what they were before the, the Great Recession, and that's in Clark County, uh, four or 5,000 new residents on a monthly basis uh, up north with uh, uh, Google and Switch and, uh, importantly, Tesla, uh, another uh, ten to 15,000 uh, new residents in Washoe County alone over just the last couple of years, and that puts strains on the existing um, health workforce. So we're seeing the shortages north-south and probably in the rurals. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in the rurals, uh, uh, while they haven't seen uh, the population growth that we've seen in urban areas of the state, uh, those populations, all things being equal, are older, sicker, poorer, uh, and have more health needs. So um, uh, they compete uh, uh, unfavorably, I hate to say, uh, against their urban counterparts in attracting uh, those uh, new licensees and uh, new health professionals. And uh, uh, any rural community that loses one doc or one dentist or one psychiatrist, uh, that, that puts a major uh, gap in uh, uh, access and availability of uh, health professionals in those communities. Dr. Pasternak, if we can start with you, I'd, I'd love to hear why you chose family medicine and what was your journey to get to family medicine? So uh, it's a great question, actually. Um, I grew up in Michigan. I uh, went to the University of Michigan for both undergrad and med school. And actually, the University of Michigan is a very tertiary care institution. Uh, specialties are uh, highly emphasized. And when I was there, we actually did not have a primary care rotation that was required uh, during medical school. But I was really fortunate to have the experience to work with uh, some uh, family physicians in some rural areas, sort of outside the normal curriculum. I got to work with a couple of family practice docs up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And after my third year of medical school, uh, I just really, that was the one rotation that clicked with me. And then what really anchored it for me are, uh, was the family practice chairman at the time was Dr. Tom Schwenk, who is now the dean at the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, and Dr. Schwenk, uh, I remember meeting with him in his office and talking about what it means to be a family physician. Uh, and I really looked up to him as a role model. And, and that sort of was the, uh, that was the thing that really uh, was sort of the final decision for me is saying, that's, that's what it means to be a family physician. And, you know, one of the things I really like about family medicine is, is there's just so much variety from day to day. Um, there's an emphasis on not just caring for your patients in your office, but also thinking about patients in your community uh, and the health of your community. Uh, and I really like that aspect of it. And then the part of it that, that I don't think you really understand, uh, or I didn't understand as a, as a medical student or even as a resident, is the whole concept of continuity. Um, and now that I've been in Reno for uh, almost 21 years, and I've literally had patients who have been with me that whole time uh, the idea of you get to know these patients intimately you get to know their families you get to understand the family dynamics it's it's a it's a very special opportunity um, that I feel very fortunate that I can care for these people so I don't mean to age you but how many years ago was that 
medical school? Uh, medical school was 20. We just had our 25th reunion last year. Oh, so, for goodness yeah. sake. Yeah, so, yeah. so 25 years ago, there sounds like there was a little more encouragement to go into specialty versus into family practice. Um, well, that was at our, at University of Michigan. I think a lot of the medical schools now, there is more getting to be more of an emphasis on primary care. I know here at the University of Nevada, uh, Reno, there's a big emphasis. They have a very strong family medicine department, and there's a big emphasis on on primary care. Um, a lot of these things go in waves. Um, you know, when I was uh, getting, or when I was getting done with medical school, there was this sort of a push of, we need more primary care physicians. And you know, there's always these cyclical trends in medicine of do we need more specialists? Do we need more, more primary care physicians? So in Nevada, we need both. Well, it seems like today in medicine, there's the realization that people do better, and I'm making a, a, a statement there, that people do better if they have a family practice physician that they go to on an ongoing basis. I, yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Um, you know, I, I'm part of a, a research organization called the North American Primary Care Research Group, which is essentially family physicians and primary care physicians through the U.S., uh, Canada, uh, and now worldwide. And when I go to that meeting, it's pretty amazing the strength of evidence that, yeah, having a primary care physician is so critical. And it's it's interesting talking to my primary care colleagues from other countries um, a lot of other countries base their entire medical system around primary care, uh, and they have lower costs and better outcomes. And I think that's one thing that we need to try to uh, continue to, to work on in our country. A lot of people don't have a primary care physician. Uh, it's one of our biggest limitations in Nevada. There was just a report that came out that we're basically at the bottom of all the states with for both uh, children and adults having a primary care home. And uh, it's it's when you don't have that primary care home, then people sort of get their care piecemeal, and there's not really a an overall health care plan for them. Right, they go to the physician when something's wrong. Right, they go to the, or they, yeah, they go to a minute clinic, they go to an emergency room, and you know those facilities have a role in, in medicine, um, but you know uh, over the period of years and years, it just having a primary care physician is so much more beneficial for for people's health. So in the last 20 years, how have you seen family practice medicine change? Um, I think the biggest thing that's really changed is there's just getting to be more pressure on primary care physicians um, on what we call pay for performance. Uh, when I first started, there, really the model of medicine was if you saw a patient, you would get paid for seeing that patient. And it didn't matter if you did the right thing, the wrong thing. Um, and now there's getting to be more of an emphasis on if you have a diabetic patient, uh, you know, there are financial incentives and financial disincentives to make sure that that patient's diabetes is under control. Or if they're on blood pressure medication to make sure their blood pressure is under, under control. Are they getting their colon cancer screening, their mammography? Um, it used to be we would get paid no matter what those rates were. And now there's getting to be more of an emphasis on uh, – on what we call pay for performance, um, which has some benefits for patients. You know, I mean, we're, it's, I think we're trying to do a better job of making sure patients get these, uh, get these services done. Um, but it, in some ways it is requiring uh, more work, more paperwork on the, on the primary care side of things. Uh, when I first started my practice here in Reno, 
really the model was to try to keep our staffing ratios as low as possible uh, to really just maybe use technology in a way that we could just keep it between, you know, keep things focused between the, the, the physician and the patient. Um, but it's over the past few years, we probably had to hire two or three additional staff just to help us with paperwork, prior authorizations, billing issues, et cetera. Dr. Packham, let's go back to the report for a minute. What do you think are the top three issues in the report, um, in this latest report that you see? Well, I would, uh, I always want to draw attention to primary care shortages. Um, uh, a lot of the developments in uh, undergraduate and graduate medical education uh, uh, have focused on uh, specialty shortages uh, in medicine, but I will always... <laughs> I, I will always be wanting to draw attention to the fact that we have still very acute primary care uh, uh, health professional shortage areas. And does uh, that include the the PAs and the nurse practitioners that uh, you were talking about? No, those those don't necessarily uh, tap that. But uh, so we're we're talking family medicine, okay. pedi pediatricians, uh, some internal medicine docs, but uh, basically. Uh, uh, two-thirds of the residents of Nevada currently live in a primary care shortage area. Uh, almost the entire population lives in a mental health uh, professional shortage area. Isn't that amazing? Um, and uh, uh, again, uh, it's, it's not a necessarily a rural versus urban issue. Uh, you see shortage areas uh, across Washoe and Clark County uh, uh, in, in uh, many of these important areas. Uh, the mental health one uh, troubles me the most, um, just as we're uh, very high historically as a western mountain state in our suicide rate, uh, double that of some states in the Midwest and East Coast. Um, we have we rank uh, 47th or 48th, depending on your stats, for psychiatrists per capita, uh, similar with uh, other mental health professionals like psychologists and uh, clinical social workers. And you talked a few minutes ago, Dr. Pasternak, about how you're seeing in your practice that you're taking, to a certain degree, the place of a mental health professional because they can't get in to see someone. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things about family medicine is we are, in your training, uh, there's a lot of training about psychiatric issues and psychology. And, and, um, and so, you know, I feel like family medicine uh, physicians have really good training in that, but there are also some limitations of that um, with some of the severity of, of, of mental health issues uh, where we all have our comfort levels. So, um, yeah, as I get older, I think that comfort level keeps expanding a little bit more just out of need for our patients. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it gets to be really, really difficult. And I think we especially see that with a lot of our patients uh, who have Medicaid and some of the Medicaid products, um, uh, access for them is really, really difficult. Yeah, access for for a lot of care is difficult right. for Well, that's Medicaid certainly patient. the case in rural areas. If you're yeah. the family medicine doc yeah. in uh, Lovelock, you're the de facto pediatrician and geriatrician sure, sure. and right. um, <laughs> um, uh, mental health provider. Uh, but Yeah, it's true. So let's talk for a minute about uh, primary care physicians the difficulties of staying in a private practice and why so many are going to work for hospitals? Well, I, th I think, you know, one of the biggest issues is uh, 
from a financial standpoint, there's a lot more stability if you go to work. You know, as a young physician coming out of residency, the idea of starting up your own practice is just overwhelming. I mean, it's hard enough to keep up with the medical side of things uh, that to come out of residency and, and have a business mind to start your own practice, I think is incredibly difficult. So I think for a lot of residents who, for a first job, uh, working for a hospital system has a lot of advantages. Uh, it's a set salary. Uh, it's typically sort of set hours. Uh, and there's a lot of security there for them. Um, being in private practice, there's a lot less security. Um, and, you know, there's challenges every day. Um, I, you know, I've gotten to the point where most days I like those challenges. Uh, Friday was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh you know, so, so I think for a lot of people, they do want to focus, uh, working for a hospital system, they feel helps them just be able to focus on taking care of patients. Um, so, you know, I, and, and, you know, I think our hospital systems, especially here in the North, have hired some really good primary care docs. Um, I think they do a, a really good job and, and, you know, and they're, a, they're a, a big resource that we need to continue to, to use to, to get people in for, for primary care services. Um, you know, I think another challenge that we haven't brought up is we're seeing a lot of the a lot of the physicians who have been in private practice uh, are now switching over to more of a concierge model. Yes, um, yes. And uh, explain and that, concierge. Yeah. Model, so 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 a concierge model, as a primary care provider, I might have a typical panel of say three thousand patients um, with traditional insurance. The idea behind a concierge model is I'm going to pare that down to say three hundred patients. Those patients pay the provider somewhere between, I've heard anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000 a year um, to be part of that concierge practice. So that, that provider, instead of taking care of 3,000 people, is only taking care of 300. Uh, and those patients have full access to the doctor. They're, you know, generally they can call them 24 hours, although patients call me 24 hours a day. Um, <laughs> but th the idea is, that, and then the, the, the provider can then spend more time with the patient if you only have 300 patients in the practice. And um, we're seeing in the past, I'd say in the past five or six years, uh, there's been at least eight to 10 physicians in Northern Nevada go into that model. And I understand why they're doing it. Uh, you know, the difficulty is for the 300 patients, that's great. For the 2,700 patients, right. they're now having to find another physician. So it actually sort of adds to the physician healthcare shortage. Interesting. Um, let's let's do a segue here a little bit, Dr. Packham, on what, what we talked about a few minutes ago and the residency programs. Mm -hmm. And what what is the School of Medicine offering in residency programs, and what do you see in the future? Well, the UNR School of Medicine still offers residency programs up north in uh, family medicine, internal medicine, psychiatry, fellowships, and some other areas. Uh, they're a little broader and a little deeper in Las Vegas, as you might guess, where I would say uh, maybe two-thirds to three-fourths of all of the GME or graduate medical education uh, physicians are located. They should be located there. Uh, we have had some encouraging developments here in uh, northern Nevada. We now have two rural residency programs, and although they are small and uh, a couple of individuals each year, uh, we're already seeing uh, uh, some of those graduates of those rural programs staying in the rural communities. And we, we kind of knew that. We crossed our fingers, and 
uh, knocked on wood and uh, uh, all of the uh, everything else, but uh, they stayed, and uh, we know that uh, to be the case. You build a good program, uh, whether it's in an urban or rural area, and physicians are more likely to stay. So we have one in Winnemucca, a very new one in Elko, and we're looking at them in other parts of uh, uh, the state, that uh, hospitals, rural hospitals that are able to support them. So do we still have quite a few young men and women that want to go into medicine, that want to become physicians? I, I think for going into undergraduate medical school, I mean, I'm hearing the competition still very stiff. It's not like, I mean, the medical schools are all filling up. Um, you know, if anything, uh, I think one of the issues that we're having a little bit is we've had medical school expansion. Uh, Las Vegas opened their medical school a few years ago. Nationwide, there's uh, more, I mean, there's more medical school spots. One of the issues that's actually coming up a little bit is there's not been a subsequent expansion of residency spots. Um, and so I think that's kind of the next step here is to try to expand some of the residency programs. Um, so, I, you know, I, it's not like people aren't going into medicine. And, and some of the young kids I, I see, uh, I work with a lot of the medical students and, and the young kids who are going into medicine, the, the, the quality, the intelligence, they're, they're incredible kids. So I think our next generation of physicians is, we're going to have really good physicians. Um, but it's, it's, it's almost at the, at the residency level is where we need the expansion right now. And what about the debt that happens for someone that goes to college and medical school and their residency? What, what is the average debt? Staggering. <laughs> 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 uh, no, I, I, I think it's getting, uh, you know, some of the numbers I'm hearing uh, are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, with some of these kids, and it depends on what medical, you know, are you going to a public med medical school, private medical school, and, um, you know, I think that harkens back to your question of why do, you know, why aren't we seeing more young kids going to a private practice? Well, mm -hmm. you know, if you have $300,000 worth of med school debt, you want some jobs, you know, you don't even have the, the capital to start your own practice, uh, and so you're going to want some job security off the bat. And that's where I think a lot of the employed models work well. Oh, and I've talked with more than one physician who wanted to practice in the state of Nevada, but uh, Kaiser would offer to right. pay off all their their student debt. Yeah. Uh, come work for Kaiser for three to five years or right. I, whatever the arrangement is. So, uh, you know, with consolidation and the kind of the demise of the Dr. Welby-type family practices, there's also... Uh, employers that just frankly have more to offer in terms of salary and loan forgiveness and other uh, inducements to, you know, work for a, a Kaiser or a larger system like Renown. Will a family practice uh, physician get reduced on their debt if they work at an FQHC? You can. You, you will be eligible for loan forgiveness mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, if you work in uh, a primary care shortage area, or uh, all, all community health centers are uh, designated uh, primary care uh, shortage facilities. They have that facility designation, so yes. And what about the J-1 visa physicians? That's a small policy lever that we have um, uh, in the state of Nevada. The numbers aren't great, but it's, a, it's an effective policy. It's, Can you explain uh, that to us? Well, you basically, uh, you, you get uh, extended uh, visa uh, if you're willing to practice in an underserved area. And uh, we have a number of <laughs> J-1 visas. They tend to all uh, land in uh, Las Vegas, uh, where there's a great deal of demand. But um, there's, there's several that are uh, working in rural areas and go on to stay 
uh, there. A physician that comes from another country that comes over to the United States to practice, is it true that many times it's not the equivalent of what you would need in the United States and that they then, are they a J-1 visa or do you need to meet all the requirements that we would in the United States? In terms of at a state level or board certification? Board level? certifications. I, I, my understanding is they still have to go through, they would still need to be a board certified. At some level, they need to go through the national board certification process. And I know the, the pathways for that are a little bit different than someone who goes through the, the U.S. system of medical school residency. Um, but there are some pathways where they can get board certification and, and, uh, and, and practice in the U.S. But it's important to point out that uh, most people don't know that we have one of the highest percentage of physicians with a foreign medical uh, degree. It's uh, over a third of the docs in uh, the state of Nevada. So oh, really? it always troubles me uh, when I read the newspapers about immigration policy. Save that for another uh, podcast, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, uh, but it's it's important to, to note the degree to which uh, not just physicians, uh, but that uh, our country relies heavily on uh, immigrants with limited visas and so forth. They're training in, in uh, another country just to staff our hospitals and, and clinics. Uh, Nevada's, again, the top of the list. We're top 10 in terms of a percentage of foreign medical grads. But I actually think that makes our healthcare system more robust. I mean, I've learned more having physicians from other countries, other. Uh, oh, I agree, and yeah, I th and yeah. I think it makes the uh, medical uh, providers more reflective of the communities yeah. they're serving yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah. So let's talk about reimbursement over the last decade for services. As you said, we we were in fee for service, and now we're going into uh, it's a Medicaid and Medicare. Um, I know there's a few physicians in our area that don't take Medicaid because of the reimbursement level. Uh, how do you see balancing all that in a practice? It's, it's getting more and more challenging. Again, you know, we, we sort of feel that we have, uh, I mean, we're starting to see more and more physicians not taking Medicare, uh, much less Medicaid. Uh, and, uh, and not so much here in Nevada, but I have, I have patients who come from Places like Marin County or uh, Phoenix, and and a lot of I guess a lot of the primary care docs just don't take Medicare there, so they're always they're like, "Wow, you take Medicare, great." Um, no, Con I, I concierge mean, docs, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you just providers need to make sure they have the, the like I said the right payer mix. I think uh, again, I think one of the biggest challenges is making sure that we are doing the right document. There's more pressure to make sure that we have the right documentation in the charts uh, and all those little things of these these new quality measures, which again, there are some upsides to these quality measures, but it does put more, it's putting a lot more pressure on the physicians um, to make sure that they're doing good things. If you meet these quality measures, there are some really good economic rewards. Um, you know, one of my issues I have with the quality measures is they tend to, you know, if you're one of the top 20% providers, you're going to do well, but 80% of the providers are not going to do well. And I, I just don't know how moving forward, even the providers who are in the bottom percentages 
uh, it's going to be really. I, I don't know how they sustain things if they're not getting these bonuses and these and these and these payouts. And you know, and some of that might be the way the office is set up. Some of that might just be your patients that you're seeing. Um, and you know, depending on where you're practicing, you may just have patients with less socioeconomic stat. You know, with less socioeconomic resources, uh, which makes taking it taking care of them much much more difficult. Well, and if you're in private practice, a certain amount of your overhead has to go to to billing. I mean, you're billing private insurance, and you're billing Medicare, you're billing Medicaid, and many times they send it back for either more information or they deny the claim. Well, as, as John was saying, with, with you know, seeing how practices evolved, when we first started our practice, the goal was really, uh, I, I have some colleague or who's a in Italy um, or a rel- sort of a distant relative who's in Italy and you go into his primary care office and it's him and one secretary and I was like oh I want to keep my staff to a minimum and that's you know when I started my practice 15 16 years ago that was kind of the model um, in the past five or six years I've gone 180 degrees and now it's I have to hire someone to do our quality measures we've had to hire essentially a session additional billing help um, and it's, yeah, we're having to hire more staff to take some of the responsibility off the providers so the providers can then hopefully focus more on the patient care side of things. And do you think that electronic medical records have enhanced your ability to take care of a client? So I'm in the minority. I actually really like electronic health care records. Um, when we started our practice, we, we've been on an electronic health care system from day one. Um, my notes are legible. Uh, the documentation's in there. I think people sort of um, romanticize about how great paper records were, and, and um, I, I, there was a lot of problems with paper records that I think people are forgetting about. I, I think more than the electronic healthcare records, again, I think the biggest issue is the amount of additional documentation that insurance companies are making sure that we put in there. Um, some of our insurance companies now, when, when people come in for a physical, it's not just, uh, you know, making sure that they've had their colonoscopy and making sure that they've had their mammography for breast cancer screening, but they want us to make sure that we put in every diagnosis for the patient. And for some patients, it could be 10 or 15 diagnoses that we need to put in and, and with that additional documentation. And um, it's those sort of tasks that when we're doing that stuff, that's not affecting patient care. We're not changing medications. We're not changing management. But it's more that just additional documentation that we're having to put in there that I think is contributing to a lot of the headaches. And I think that that has to be separated from what is uniquely American, and that is uh, Andy has to deal with literally hundreds, if not thousands, of public and private payers that most physicians and providers in other developed countries with EHRs uh, are not having to deal with. Uh, I worked in a Swedish hospital uh, uh, several years ago, and the billing office was about as big as the podcast room we're sitting in, and that is it was five or six people in a regional hospital that was bigger than Renown. And go into any U.S. hospital, and you will see uh, entire rooms or wings or floors dedicated to billing and uh, chasing those those claims. Sure, billing is huge. Yeah. Coding is yeah. huge. I'll, I'll echo that. I have a, a colleague, uh, one of, actually one of my faculty when I was at Michigan, he was one of, my, one of the attendings. He's now moved up to, Can- he grew up in Michigan, practiced at University of Michigan, moved up to Canada, 
uh, and we had a discussion about the whole billing and he's like, how many providers do you have? I said, well, we're about three and a half. Uh, and he goes, you know, and I said, we basically have a full-time biller and he goes he, up in Canada, he's got seven providers. They do billing one half day a week for the seven providers. So there's their overhead there. And he goes, yeah, we just take those resources instead of putting them in billing. We actually can take care of patients as opposed to worrying about the billing headaches. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk for a second about the sort of, to me, the new phenomenon of social determinants, that uh, family practice medicine and any medicine now is taking into consideration what we call social determinants. Does someone have enough food? Do they have shelter? Uh, some of the basic needs that now a physician needs to be involved with so that their patient can have an optimum time to heal. Um, what do you, that seems like that's the future. Do you think, John, that in the medical schools that we're talking about social determinants with the medical students? Well, I, I would actually say, uh, to their credit, uh, family medicine has been attentive to social determinants for decades. It's just part of your practice to be asking, uh, oh, are you, did you lose your job? Uh, uh, you know, how are, how are the kids doing in college? Uh, uh, and well, why do you think suddenly we're all talking about social determinants? Well, because I think some of the uh, early evidence of medicine taking stock of and attending to social determinants has been borne out by, again, the experience of family medicine practices and primary care clinics. Uh, uh, I would say a lot of that um, uh, in our community, we uh, think of like Hope's Clinic and uh, Community Health Alliance. Uh, the, the, the way they structure their services is attentive, uh, vision, dental, behavioral health, in addition to uh, primary care and the role those uh, centers, you know, play in uh, specialty referrals. Uh, th they've got to be on their game when it <laughs> comes to, you know, income, education, housing, and uh, other things that we know uh, are driving health uh, in our community. So do you think in the medical schools that we're teaching the reality of medicine, as it is today. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and our School of Medicine, um, we have our uh, 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 clinics for low-income individuals. Uh, a lot of our, you know, rot rotations and so forth now are uh, in, in settings that weren't always the case uh, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. So, I, I yeah, I'm kind of bullish on that. I, I think uh, if you live in a uh, a community like uh, Reno, and uh, you're seeing a lot of positive economic development and um, construction and so forth. Uh, we're also tripping over homeless people every day. Every, everybody knows that, and I don't think, I don't think the medical communities uh, that's lost on them. I'll put it that way. Right. And Dr. Pasternak, what do you find in your practice over the last decade in relationship to social determinants? Well, I, um, as John said, I think in, in family medicine especially. Um, you know, I, I'm part of a group called the North American Primary Care Research Group, and it's a big, mostly family medicine research uh, within U.S., Canada, but now international. And, and uh, I've been part of that organization now for over 20 years, and social determinants, they've been doing research on social determinants for 25 years. Uh, why it's coming to the forefront now I think is kind of interesting, but that's kind of been beaten into me. And I remember as a young resident fellow, you know, sort of people talking about, you know, you can give people the best, they can come into your practice, you can give them treatment for asthma, but if you're sending them into a setting where there's smoke, the house is dirty, uh, they're homeless, 
um, you can give them the best medications, but they're they're still going to have issues. So if they don't have a refrigerator to put their insulin, the in. insulin, yeah, right? I mean, there's just coming. some of these very practical considerations that I think within primary care we, we sort of are looking at. Um, you know, it's one of the things that when I talk to the, the students and residents, is I try to get across to them of when you guys go into practice, it's important obviously to take good care of your patients when you're in the room with them, but you need to think about your community. You need to think outside your community you know, or what's going on in your community. Is there adequate green space so people can get enough physical activity? Uh, is there adequate food uh, accessibility? Um, and just some of those really basic practical considerations that, um, you know, that it, and it may not necessarily help their patients, but it might help their colleagues' patients. Um, but I think within primary care, there's a real uh, need to be, do, to be focusing on those areas. So let me bring up the um, buzzword, uh, Medicare for all. So what do you think if that becomes a reality in the next few years, that that would impact, would that have on workforce development, Dr. Peck? Well, I won't throw cold water on it, but I don't think it's going to happen in the next <laughs> couple of years. Uh, I think what's productive, though, is that we're having the conversation, and we haven't had that conversation uh, in a couple of years, and that is, what should uh, the goals of policy be? And what I like about uh, the Medicare for All is uh, you have at least one political party talking about universal coverage and uh, access for all and equity issues, and that can only be a good thing. Uh, I think there are a lot of varieties uh, of uh, met proposed Medicare reforms. I would call uh, you know the Sanders uh, version, Medicare for All, it really is it, just open up the uh, traditional Medicare program uh, to all residents of the United States. I would call the other ones Medicare for some or Medicare for a little, little more uh, uh, people. Um, uh, but again, it's uh, uh, kind of a refreshing return to the conversations uh, that we were having in the early years of the Obama administration. That is, how do we get to universal uh, health care, not whether we should do that. And so uh, it's a positive development. So what would you like to see happen with the report this year, Dr. Packham? What would you, what would be the ideal for you that comes from the data that you've compiled? Oh, just a, a greater attention by policymakers. The governor's uh, just signed into law a patient protection commission. Uh, uh, my hope would be that if there's any uh, uh, discussions or subcommittee work on uh, health workforce development, how do we increased supply given the demand that uh, our data would be used uh, to inform that uh, discussion. And will you be having those discussions in the I future? I hope so, yeah, yeah. I hope so too. <laughs> and those, you know, and those issues, um, along with Dr. Packham, I was involved a lot with the legislative session, and I know our state and county medical societies have really been working with the legislature to say, we want, we need to have policies at the state level that do make it, that make Nevada a place that physicians want to come to. Um, you know, some of the, the balance billing issues that came up, uh, some of the initial proposals from a few years ago would have really affected physician salaries for the, for the physicians who are, who are most impacted by that, uh, ER, anesthesia, uh, radiology. And so, you know, I know our state medical society has really been focusing a lot of, let's talk to the legislature we need to come up with some resolutions for these issues, but we also need to make sure that we have policies in place that make Nevada an attractive place for physicians to come to. Well, and you were talking about social determinants. I actually think that's where the, the medical societies 
uh, have uh, uh, played an important role in not just focusing on their, their turf issues, but uh, also being supportive of uh, things like gun legislation and housing legislation. And uh, I don't know where they stood on the minimum wage, uh, but I do know that uh, there's been uh, some of those issues have moved because the medical community got behind them. And some of them have nothing to do necessarily with medical practices, social determinants of health again. And um, Dr. Pasternak, on the Medicare for All, how do you feel that would change medicine? Well, I, I think before we go to a Medicare for All model, I, I would, I, I am, we need to get more people on health insurance. I mean, there's nothing that's more uh, devastating that, you know, we, we have someone who comes in, they have a medical issue, they don't have health insurance, um, and especially uh, prior to Obamacare when pre-existing conditions would then disqualify them. I mean, I had a number of times that I would have patients come in and I would basically say, we did not have this discussion. You do not know who I am. Go get on health insurance and let you know, and then we can start figuring out what's going on. So, we need to get more people on health insurance. I, I think the biggest issue we need to have as a as a country is, what do we want our healthcare system to do? Um, and, you know, right now we have a healthcare system that, uh, you know, if you want to get a hip replacement or knee replacement, you can get in to see an orthopedic doctor very quickly and get that done quickly. Um, we don't have a healthcare system that if you want to get into your primary care physician and get a tetanus shot, that's almost more difficult. Um, and I think, you know, as we have these discussions, people compare us to Canada, England, other countries, you know, oh, it took me eight weeks to get in to get my hip replacement. From a primary care standpoint, if that puts more resources into primary care, I'm kind of okay with that, but I also want to make sure that our, our, our communities are okay with those. So, yeah, I think with a lot of these things, before we come up with a, a system that works, we really need to have a better discussion of what we want the system to do. So, Dr. Packham, what, what else would you like us to know about the Workforce Development Report? Uh, just that we have been bird-dogging this data for uh, two decades and plan on doing it in the future. Uh, uh, again, just so leadership uh, and policymakers in the state have the, the best available data to make decisions about workforce. Okay. And Dr. Pasternak, what would you say to someone who's thinking about going into family family practice medicine? I, I still think it's an incredibly re re rewarding career. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I think I'm absolutely blessed that I've been in practice for this long. Um, I feel like I'm part of our community. Uh, uh, you know, Reno's the biggest little city, and um, as a primary care physician, it's pretty amazing. It's getting hard to go out without one of my patients seeing me, and, and um, you know, it, it, it is tough. Uh, there's a lot of work. There's sometimes some work that we don't want to, you know, that I have to admit that I'm like, why are we doing this? But, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you have this continuity with your patients, you, you realize the impact that you're having on your community, and um, to me, it's still an incredibly rewarding job. Well, I want to thank you both. We've been talking about workforce development in the state of Nevada, medical workforce development, and we've also been talking about primary care and family practice medicine. I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Andy Pasternak of Silver Sage Center for Family Medicine and Silver Sage Sports and Fitness Lab, and Dr. John Packham, Associate Dean, Office of Statewide Initiatives, University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine, and I personally want to thank both of you for your continued commitment to our community and the diligence that 
I personally know that you um, that you look at our community and do for them. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks.